Hello and welcome to The Leap of Faith. A song recorded by young people in Nyami prison in Niger in Africa. Among them are children being fed through the work of the charity Mary's Meals. Later we'll hear from the Irish branch about efforts to feed 1.6 million children every day, given the restrictions of the worldwide pandemic. As the 500th anniversary of the death of Raphael, one of the greatest artists of the Italian Renaissance is marked, we'll talk with biographer Father Michael Collins on the release of his new book, about the man known as the Divine Painter. But first, joining us from his home this evening is the newly elected moderator of the Presbyterian Church in Ireland, the Right Reverend Dr David Bruce. Reverend Bruce, welcome to The Leap of Faith. I'm thinking back to 1984, to your ordination. Could you have had any idea of what lay ahead for you? You couldn't really, could you? I really didn't. I, my pathway in ministry has probably been a little different from most parish ministers. But, and you know, one of the nice things about being um, a Christian minister is, if I can borrow a, a an analogy or a, a, a scriptural reference from Hebrews, it's that you walk by faith, not by sight. You you really don't know what's in front of you uh, as you go, and that certainly has been my experience. It's lovely that within a minute you've actually given me some scripture, and I suppose that helps people who might know the Presbyterian faith too well about the importance of the Bible and its, its, its actual authority for you in your faith. Yeah, the Presbyterian Church in Ireland is part of the worldwide Reformed uh, tradition. Uh, we've been here for 400 years uh, in the early 1600s, began obviously, I suppose, as part of the plantation of Ulster historically. Uh, but we very much made this our home over the years. And yes, the Bible is uh, central to uh, to what we believe and teach. Uh, but we see ourselves as uh, allied to and aligned with the broader Christian traditions as they're expressed in different denominations all present in Ireland today. So we're very much part of the family. And yet you have uh, a changing world where people have changed their attitudes to everything from Sunday trading to you know, the protection of life. Ireland is almost unrecognizable since the days when my wife and I first started out in ministry, strangely enough, in Clontarf in North Dublin. Uh, we were ministers there. I was minister there and also in the Scots Church in Abbey Street. Uh, just on emerging from recession, the Celtic tiger had not yet started to growl. Uh, the traditional Catholic values that would have been familiar to every Irish person were still very much in play. So the Ireland that we now see before us is a radically different place. It's multicultural, it's international, it's increasingly secular, it's uh, much more questioning of the values uh, in its heritage. And look, look, you know, there's many things about that that are good, just as there are many things about that that we would, I suppose, look upon as deeply challenging. People talk about the separation of church and state and, and politics. Do you see yourself as having a, a role in lobbying politicians? Probably not in lobbying politicians, if by that you mean seeking to persuade politicians down a particular uh, party political line. Uh, but yes, I certainly see my role as moderator, and indeed we have a council within our denomination set up specifically for this purpose, to engage in the public square in matters of 
public affairs, and this will be to do with all things that you might imagine we would have an interest in, and they include the one that you've mentioned, which is the um, uh, the, the question of human life, its its beginnings and its endings, uh, how, how ethical issues will impinge on decision making, how legislators come to their conclusions about which laws to pass, and so you know, in a democracy, we exercise our privilege to be able to engage with politicians and talk with them about these matters. If we turn our attention for a moment to the United States and the uh, several circumstances where religion was used by President Trump, whether it was standing beside a, a statue of Pope John Paul II or indeed holding a, a Bible in the air, the churches, when they have been uh, angered or outraged by this, have been reminded that they too had a history that over the centuries supported racist behaviour or indeed segregation. This is... So true. I, I tweeted about this actually uh, shortly after the pictures of Pres President Trump standing outside the church uh, holding the Bible uh, became clear. And what I said was that the, the president perhaps needs to be careful about the way he handles the Bible. And that's something that I would say to church uh, leaders, just as I would say to any politician, just as I would say to anybody who gives the impression of invoking or uh, holding the Bible in such a way as to bolster or legitimize their cause. The Bible is <laughs> a fascinating thing. It's a fascinating book, but it's also um, a fascinating thing in that itself describes itself as like a two-edged sword. You know, it will do what you think it's going to do, but it kind of bites back. So uh, I would be wanting to counsel caution for to President Trump or anybody else who invokes the Bible in this way to say, just be careful what you're doing with it. It's going to surprise you and probably not in a good way. You're going to find yourself scrutinized by it just as you seek to use it to further your own cause. And if it's also used to maintain or create a difference between two kinds of people. One of the lovely things about Scripture is how it uses repetition for emphasis. And there's a phrase that runs no less than 108 times through the Bible, and it's the idea of, of God being the God of all nations. It runs right back from, to the beginning when God made his promises to Abraham, the father of the, the three main uh, Semitic faiths, right the way through, uh, that God is a God of all nations. And I find myself repeatedly drawn to the extent, the breadth of the love of God expressed in Christ. It's not an ethnic love. It's not a racial love. It's not determined by the, uh, the ethnic origins of a person, the color of their skin, their economic status. It is determined by God's heart of love for all people everywhere, irrespective of those ethnic distinctives. So I would be wanting to offer that as a corrective. And, you know, when, when I saw President Trump holding the Bible in that way, my my heart was saying, I, what I really wish is that you, instead of waving the book, if you would actually sit down with the residents of the people who live in that area, do you know, if you had sat down with them and opened the book and had a conversation about its contents, that would have been nourishing. That would have been potentially healing. That would have been the beginning of a conversation that could have been transformative. But instead, it was turned into a kind of political symbol. And to my mind, he crossed a line there. And I felt I needed to say something about it. Moderators in time always take on a theme for their time. Uh, what is yours? 
My theme, Michael, this year is uh, one word, and it's the word home. Strangely enough, I'd settled on this just after my election to the office, which was back in February, and this was before we all found ourselves locked down in our homes. You and I are both uh, recording this in our, I think you're maybe in your study or your dining room. I'm in my bedroom here. So, you know, we've, we've, we've had an experience of home, which has been very different from the norm. But the, the Bible is full of references to home. I mentioned Abraham just as one example. He, the origins of Abraham's story are that, that God spoke to him and told him to leave his home and go to another one, which was what we now call the promised land. He didn't know where he was going, but off he went in obedience to God's command. So he left his home, but went on a journey to another one. But, you know, you can sketch out beyond those examples to the biggest example of all which is that God is leading us to a new home, a home in the church where we're with other believers, but beyond that to a home in heaven ultimately when we die, because, of course, central to Christian belief is that death is not the end. I will be conducting an online service of worship uh, for the whole denomination uh, every Sunday for the next number of months, and I'm going to be using that as a vehicle to talk about home and expand on the theme, because I think there is a sense in which all the churches are facing the same thing. We are all having to reinvent or reimagine the way that we do church when we can't physically meet in the one building. Dr. David Bruce, thank you for joining us on The Leap of Faith tonight. Uh, thank you very much indeed, Michael. Next this evening, Mary's Meals is a global charity which introduces school feeding programs in communities where poverty and hunger prevent children from gaining an education. They provide daily meals for over 1.6 million children in Africa, Asia, Latin America, the Caribbean and Eastern Europe. Those involved in the first Mary's Meals project were all people whose lives had been changed by pilgrimages to Medjugorje, leading them to name the organisation in honour of Mary, the mother of Jesus. The charity is an Irish branch and I'm joined now from our home in County Cavan by the National Director, Patricia Freel. Patricia, thank you for joining us this evening. Tell us more about the charity you work for, Mary's Meals. Whose idea was it? It's a lovely man, uh, a Scottish man called Magnus McFarlane Barrow. Uh, he started the charity in 2002. He was on a relief mission to Malawi and he went to a house of a woman um, who was dying and he met her 14-year-old son there in Malawi. This little boy was called Edward and he just happened to say to Edward, you know, what would you like to do someday? What are your hopes? What are your dreams? And Edward said to him, very simply, I would like to have enough food to eat and be able to go to school one day. And Magnus McFarlane Barrow realised that if he could bring food into schools, that these little children would be attracted to school and would come gain an education and nutrition at the same time. It is interesting that when you see the figures associated with this, it kind of puts it in context. I read that you feed over one million children every school day. It's 1,667,067 children, so 1.6 million children every school day in a place of education. But COVID-19 happened as it happened to all of us. The pandemic struck and we had a few weeks where the schools were closing. One by one, we were getting notifications of our schools across 19 countries closing. And as Mary's Meals, we're sitting here going, we are a school feeding programme. We feed children in a place of education. If the children aren't in school, how can we get that food to them? And we have made a promise to these children, Michael. We have promised that we will be there. We've made a promise to the communities that we will feed their children. 
and we had to work out how we were going to do that. So we're used to working in incredibly difficult situations and circumstances. So this was a challenge for us, but I am delighted to be able to say that even under the COVID-19 restrictions, that's restricting movement and physical distancing, we are still feeding 1.6 million children, but we're just feeding them in a different way now. It's still striking as you as you give me that number that um, it's a very sad number as well. The, the idea oh. that, that you're providing this service to 1.6 million children uh, isn't it somebody else's responsibility as well that they're fed? They're governments, uh, the, the, the countries they live in. You would think that, and us living in a nation like Ireland, you would think that your government, you could rely on them. But these countries, there's so many of them that have different crises, whether it's food shortages or there's wars happening. So the communities are left to their own devices, as far as I've seen. I travelled out to Zambia in November and I met beautiful beautiful delegations of people who come every day to cook the food for their children, who are so grateful for Mary's meals, so grateful to the strangers all over the world who provide the money that pays for that food. And that was the most phenomenal thing. We, in our schools, there say there could be the three or four teachers, but there might only have been one of those teachers that was paid by the government. The rest of the teachers were volunteer teachers. And they said if they waited for the government to pay them, that the children would never get educated. You know, it'd be a long time before those children. So it's a beautiful community aspect when you're over there. And do the countries resent the work that Mary's Meals are doing uh, in any way? I don't think so. Um, they embrace it. Uh, we work very closely with the governments. COVID-19 proved that to us because we had to work alongside those community leaders and the governments of those countries. And they, we were welcomed. We were absolutely welcomed that we were thinking outside the box and finding ways that we could still keep feeding those children now at home. We're also providing the families with soap and with hand hygiene information just to try and stop the virus spreading also. What was the impression that Zambia made on you? I've had Mary's Meals in my own heart for years. Um, I've been a volunteer for, for many years before I started working for Mary's Meals. And I've had those children in my heart all the times I've seen their little smiling faces but what struck me was the mothers the mothers that came to thank us like there was one particular one lady that thanked me for feeding her child that has never left me Michael and I made a promise to that lady that I would never stop that I would never stop and that's why I'm on the radio today you know just trying to spread the awareness for Mary's meals. Trisha you don't just feed children in schools there are some children as well in rather difficult circumstances. Absolutely, Michael. Um, there are children who are currently in prison. They're in prison for quite a long time because they don't even have a trial. And for something very menial as stealing food, there was a beautiful group of uh, students that actually recorded a rap song um, all about their experience and about about the food that they bring uh, from Niger. And we also feed children in prisons in Madagascar. It's sad, but it's good that we can bring the nutrition that they need. We work with partners as well who go in to actually educate the children. So they are getting their education and they're getting their food. So at least we're not being disadvantaged in that way. And closer to home, you've got a very interesting initiative. Tell me more about a present for my teacher. Absolutely. A wonderful initiative. Well, I told you first how this, this whole charity was brought along by the words of a child. That little boy, Edward, 14 years of age. But yet we have children right here in Ireland that are inspired by Mary's Meals and want to help children. Children help the children. Three beautiful children in Offaly. Um, Karen, Peter and Joe Hughes. 
they were looking every year about how they buy their teacher a present and they decided, you know, what if we had a way that instead of giving the teacher a present that we could give her a card or a certificate and donate the money to Mary's Meals. So they came to us earlier this year with an idea for a website called presentformyteacher.com um, and that I was delighted they went live uh, just there this Monday, June 8th. You have some very well-known and interesting ambassadors helping you out as well. Yes, indeed. We have uh, Jared Butler. He's a Scottish actor. Uh, he actually met Magnus in 2010, our founder, Magnus McFarlane Barrow. He presented him with a CNN Hero Award. And it's funny when you see the clip because this Hollywood movie star is presenting this man from Scotland with a kiss, get kilt on. And he's actually starstruck because Jared Butler's mother had spoke about Magnus for years saying, you need to do something for this charity. You need to help this charity. Um, and we're delighted to say uh, Jared actually made a film with us um, called Love Reaches Everywhere. And that will be uh, launched uh, coming close to the end of the month, around the 25th. And it will be free to watch for everyone on our website and on our Facebook. Jared Butler's mum also features um, in the video as well, which is nice. We get to meet his mum. So fi finally, if I could, I could Patricia, you, you mentioned that uh, this was a programme that was done through schools. And with the schools being closed now, where are the children being fed? So the families come to locations within the community to collect their food. Um, so they get their ration in a bag. So they get their ingredients for their food and they would also get their bar of soap and their hand hygiene tips as well. Um, and when you see the pictures from across all of the 19 different countries and how they are socially distancing is with a circle in the sand. You stand in a circle and the next circle is two metres away and you can see them standing. And it's a beautiful thing, the smiles on their faces. You know, imagine that mother or that, you know, that guardian going to pick up that bag of food. And like we talked about Irish mummies, Scottish mummies, I'm sure a Malawian mummy can make more out of that bag of food than what, what, what we would normally do in Mary's meals in the school kitchen. You know, she'll add a little bit extra food and you know, the whole family will probably get fed. Patricia Field, Executive Director of Mary's Meals Ireland, thank you for joining us on the programme tonight. Michael, thank you very much for your time. And you can find more information about Mary's Meals on our website, rte.ie forward slash leap. Finally, this year marks the 500th anniversary of the death of Renaissance master Raphael, best known for his Madonnas, including the Sistine Madonna, and his large figure compositions in the Palace of the Vatican in Rome. A contemporary of Michelangelo and da Vinci, this most influential artist was sought out by popes, kings and aristocrats to decorate their residence. Biographer Father Michael Collins has just seen his new book, Raphael's World, go on release, and he joins me now from his home in Dublin. Michael, welcome to the programme. Who was the artist Raphael, who these days might be described, as, I suppose, as a rock star of his time? Well, he was a rock star, yes. He was one of the three greats. I think many people would recognise the name Michelangelo, Leonardo, Raphael. In fact, I think there was some ninja turtles named after the three. And uh, they lived, they were all Italian, even though Italy, in a sense, didn't exist at that period. It was uh, a 19th century invention, but they lived on the Italian peninsula. And the three of them were artists and artists of a particular period called High Renaissance. So Raphael was born um, on the Middle East coast of Italy in a place called the Marche in 1483. His father was, uh, his father was actually um, a hardware store manager, um, had his own little hardware shop. In fact, these days of COVID, he'd have been one of the earliest to open. But he, he was actually a very gifted man because uh, a lot of artists were coming in and out of the court of the Duke of Urbino, 
which is the most important palace in the, in the little town. And it was an important uh, dukedom. And uh, Giovanni took up painting, having seen so many of the artists come in and out. He started off as a gilder, painting uh, frames, gilding the actual frame for a large canvas. And then he turned to sand painting and became, excuse the pun, a dab hand at painting. And then when he was uh, coming to the prime of his work, uh, when Raphael was 11, he was his only surviving child, uh, he actually died. And then he left a small little studio to the 11-year-old. And he'd just recently married his second wife, Raphael's mother had died a few years earlier. And Raphael, a young boy of 11, could really inherit the studio and do something with it. So uh, that little period of about six years is vague. None of the records, and there are pretty extensive records of his era, none of the records give us a definitive idea of what he was doing. But he certainly seems to have become a professional painter himself. And already by the age of 17, he was referred to as a magister, which means that you know he'd obviously gone to painting school, even though it wasn't formal in those days. And then uh, in 1504, he had the opportunity of going to Florence. And he asked actually the Duchess of Urbino if she wouldn't mind writing a letter of introduction because he was a precocious kid as a 20-year-old, which is great for him because one of the important things about Raphael I'd, I've discovered is that he had a tremendous sense of artistry, but also he had a very good commercial nose. And very often those two don't go together. You know, you get great artists who are fabulous, can do everything, but they can never sell their work or else you've got pretty mo mediocre artists who are very convinced of their own superiority and uh, they turned the whole thing into a commercial enterprise. So he went down to Florence, certainly in 1504, and um, he met there at that occasion Michelangelo and Leonardo da Vinci, both of whom would received a commission to design uh, frescoes and uh, oils in the, in the main government palace in Florence and they were working there actually almost as a competition so he's very impressed by meeting those two greats you know a young kid just barely in his 20s uh, suddenly meeting these two giants of the art artist world. Michael you want to end up dropping names all over the place like plates because the contemporaries of, of his time were names we all know. They were I mean a lot of the people uh, were also in the religious sphere and these were very important because they were patrons to Michelangelo, uh, to Leonardo, and to Raphael. And because these three men got extraordinary patrons, they also became the successes that they were. The title of your book, The Turbulent World of the Divine pa Painter, what was turbulent about the time? Well, I think that the thing that was most interesting to me were all the battles that were being fought, and many of the battles being fought by popes. Alexander VI, um, Julius II, who's called the Terrible Pope, uh, he led a number of expeditions against towns in the north of Italy, claiming them back because they rebelled from what were called Papal States, which were lands owned by the church to provide an income. So that was part of the turbulence. But another part I was very interested in at the period was uh, printing had only been invented 30 years or so before he was born in the uh, 1450s by Gutenberg in Germany. And Raphael actually was the first artist who started using printing in a commercial basis, and he made prints of his own works. Columbus, of course, was sailing to the Americas, and that was bringing back gold and money into the New World. And when he was uh, at the height of his powers, and just three years before he died, Martin Luther launched the Reformation as a, 
a protest against the abuses in the church. What do you like to have been around at the time? Absolutely, yeah. I'd love to have been. I'd say it was a very colourful a place full of intrigue and that's what what i wanted to try and trace in the book because i was fascinated by this combination you know the constellation of all the stars coming together printing suddenly arriving an improvement in painting techniques uh, was on the horizon uh, wonderful patrons who were plowing in the money and then there's also that religious ferment because shortly after Raphael, his work fell after his death in 1520 his work fell out of favor uh, partly because of the Reformation. And I remember a friend of mine, Church of Ireland minister, said to me one time, uh, she said, you know, you Catholics went uh, so far over the top that we Protestants went so far under. And I thought it was actually a wonderful expression of the way that uh, Christianity, which had a, a kind of a love-hatred relationship with the arts, um, developed in that way. We hear a lot about artistic temperament. Was he a likeable man? Everyone says he was absolutely a charmer. Um, he was very good looking from his youth. He was a, an extremely charming person and uh, the ladies apparently fell at his feet. And in fact, Fasari, who was one of his great admirers and he wrote a biography of all the great uh, architects and painters and sculptors of the period, he, he really had a great time for uh, Raphael would have heard a lot of stories about him. And he said that in actual fact, his death was caused by a night of excess uh, with a lady. Anyway, he apparently uh, got a fever and he died shortly afterwards. It's more likely that he died of malaria, but anyway, the story is great if he died of um, excess of charms. Michael, when you think about his works, is there one in particular that you have as a favourite? Uh, there is, yes. The Transfiguration, which is in the Vatican Museums and there's a copy in St. Peter's and uh, it's taken from the Bible. Most of his works were either Madonnas or religious uh, themes. And this one is of Jesus uh, going to Mount Tabor with his apostles, Peter, uh, James and John. And in their presence, the New Testament says he was transfigured. So his face shone like the sun, his garments like uh, a fuller's dye. Um, and then they wanted to remain there forever. But the next uh, paragraph of the, of the gospel story says that he came down and he, he exercised a young boy. Uh, who'd been taken over by an, a malign spirit. And Raphael has this wonderful division of the two paintings. He often used that trick, dividing a canvas in two. So the upper part has Jesus in light, uh, completely tranquil and peaceful. And the second part has the boy. And if you look at the centre of the top, you find Jesus. And at the centre of the bottom part, you'll find nothing. And you look and you see, why is there nothing there? And that was the whole concept. Raphael was trying to get across life with God is peace, confidence and tranquility, whereas life without God, possessed by the devil, is blank and a vacuum. Well, the book is out at the moment, Raphael's World, uh, from Messenger Publications. You'll find it online. And the author, Michael Collins, thank you for joining us so much on the programme this evening. Michael, thanks so much for having me. A pleasure. And Father Michael Collins is giving a series of free online talks this month about Christian art in Rome. For more information, you can go to our website, rte.ie forward slash leap. And that's the Leap of Faith for this week. Join us next week at the same time for the penultimate programme in the current series. From producer Sheila Gallen, broadcast coordinator Charlotte Holland, and me, Michael Cummins, good night. <laughs>